Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, good to, to see everybody again in Deuteronomy class. Sorry for getting started a little late here. Uh, we're going to be picking up in Deuteronomy chapter 29 this morning together. And chapter 29 is part of a section that goes into chapter 30. And chapter 29 is the chapter that creates a lot of tension. And so I titled this lesson, Tension and Ellipses, because we're not going to get to the resolution yet. So we're looking at half of a section here in which the tensions of the law or the tension of the instruction that God has given at this point is pushing forward for the need for something to happen, uh, to look to something greater, to look for some sort of resolution. And you probably know a verse out of Deuteronomy 29 which is verse 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, this is a really familiar verse to us, and we're going to get to see it in its context. And you might find that it means something a little bit different than what you thought but what we see in the, the tensions in this chapter, I'm going to have a super long introduction and probably not finish this whole lesson and have to figure out what to do with it later. But these uh, tensions, you could think of it in terms of like sovereignty and responsibility. There's God's divine sovereignty, and he says things are this way and they're that way. And then there's human responsibility for how the human acts, even in the circumstances and the situation that God puts them in. You might have had this discussion with other people under the terms of Calvinism and Arminianism. And when the Calvinist wins, because the Calvinist does win, and the Arminian doesn't want to concede to that, they just say, well, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong. You know, nobody could understand this, not even you. You don't even know what you're talking about. So they just kind of in there with you. And you'll probably recognize something of a, what you might call a paradox in this chapter and God uh, commanding them to do something that he's not giving them the ability to do, I'd say it's an apparent paradox because God doesn't, there's nothing paradoxical about God. It might appear that way to you, but it makes perfect sense in the, the mind of God even though you can't conceive of it in your finitude. When it comes to Deuteronomy, I think one of the things that's been clear to us is that it's not just a bunch of laws. You know, just reading it, it's like, oh, this book is just full of a bunch of laws. Maybe I can, like, read real fast and get to Matthew. <laughs> but it's much more than that, and that these laws function as a witness to God's plan. They're, they're telling you, they're, they're giving, you know, eschatology, if you will, but they're also giving... You know, protology, and that they're 
It's been explained to Israel, this is where you came from, this is where you're at, and this is where you're going. You know, they're learning redemptive history through the law, which you would expect because the word law means instruction. It's instruction about uh, what God has been, is, has been doing, is doing, and will be doing in the world, especially through his servant nation, Israel. And so the tensions that we see, as we've mentioned, I want to make sure I get you some verse numbers here. The, the first one, I can say, I can't write out all these words, but well, it's a, it's a vertical to vertical tension. So I'm going to draw something for you after I try to spell the word sovereignty correctly. Okay, tension number one, sovereignty and responsibility. All right, there's going to be another tension that's going to go vertical to horizontal, which maybe I'll draw this one out here. You think, you know, there's God's sovereignty and then there's man's responsibility. There's going to be another tension. We'll see it's a vertical to horizontal horizontal, which what I'm thinking about here is this concept of uh, the individual and then the corporate relationship. So we kind of learned this in the, the last two chapters is that, you know, what an individual's guilt can end up with a corporate punishment in Israel. Now, it's like, you know, one person sins and is off according to God's standard, everybody goes into exile. So that's one of the tensions that's there. It's like, well, why does this happen to happen to all of us if it's, you know, it's those individuals? And so you have that with this, you know, you got sovereignty to responsibility. And within responsibility, we have the individual and then the corporate relationship. You see, that's moving horizontally, and this is all under the sovereignty of God. The next tension is a horizontal to horizontal, because you'll remember that Israel is God's servant nation. They're supposed to be, they're, they're a great nation that was promised to be a blessing to all nations. But the tension is going to be that in God's sovereignty, he hasn't given them a heart to do this stuff, but he's promised to do it. So it's like, how's it going to work if he promises that they're going to be a blessing to all nations, but he hasn't even given them a heart to believe in him or the ability to follow him. So you see tensions with all of this stuff together here in these chapters. And I'm going to try to you know, present this to you in a way that it's, clarifying, and I think you'll see it within the text. So this little section here is going to be verses 2 to 9. The next tension we'll see, verses 10 to 21, and then we'll have, we'll look at 22 to 29. Now, with this vertical to vertical tension, you know, sovereignty and responsibility, 
We know that what, what drives the fulfillment of the law is not just rote obedience to it. Just the external performing uh, of the law does not fulfill it. But the law points to the thing that God is actually interested in. Uh, what is the thing that God is actually interested in? Yeah, he's interested in, you, in your heart, your control center, uh, the very fabric of all of your being. You're, you're to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Uh, if you don't, then you, you fall into idolatry. So the focus of the law is on the heart. It's instructing it, and it's pointing out the problem, and the problem is you. You're the problem. It's your heart, and it's the sin that's in there, and that's what needs to be fixed. But here's the tension. The problem is you can't fix it. There's nothing you can do about it. And you might think back to Deuteronomy 10.26. The Israelites were told, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. That'll fix it. But they can't do that. So there's a tension. Now this next tension here, the vertical to horizontal, this has to deal with the individual and their corporate relationship, the individual within the nation of Israel. And the way that you determine if it's being, they're talking about an individual or the corporate is by the word you, which I know we don't have, you know, a ye in our Bible anymore like we did back in the King James, but some of those yous are y'alls. The way you know is, well, is it talking about more than one person here? <laughs> that's how you figure it out. And that's important to recognize while you're reading through this, but you think about how the failure of, you know, certain individuals affects everybody corporately. You think about that even with Joshua and Caleb. You know, those two guys were going to eventually go into the promised land, but they weren't able to go immediately. Why? Well, because they got penalized with everybody else, but it wasn't because of sin that they committed. It was some other individuals, but it affected the entire corporate entity of Israel. So when it comes to you know, the Mosaic Covenant, or maybe better, we, we would call it the Israelite Covenant, who has to keep the whole law? Everybody. And so that, that's part of the tension. Everybody has to keep it absolutely perfectly. It's similar to you know, a team. A team is made of players. If you know, certain players don't play by the rules, the whole team could lose because of individuals that don't play the game the way that they're supposed to. So how can you get the corporate blessing if individuals don't do what they're supposed to do? Well, you can't, and that's part of the tension. And how can you get the corporate blessing when every individual needs to circumcise their heart, but they can't do it? They can't do the very thing that God says that they need to do to even get started. So they're, they're purposefully, in God's sovereignty, set up for failure. You might remember back in chapters 27 to 28, this was in 27 verse 26, it says, Cursed is he who does not perform the words of this law by doing them. This applied to everybody. There are no exceptions to it. 
And so there's a judicial curse. It is, you know, in God's courtroom, you're guilty for breaking his law, and therefore you deserve to be cursed, which is the idea of there being punishment. So you're guilty, you deserve to be punished, and if God is just, he has to punish you. And that tension was set up when we heard, you know, the, what was to be shouted from Mount Ebal after Moses said, I'm going to explain to you, you know, the blessings and the, and the curse. But then from Mount Ebal, all they hear is cursed, 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 cursed. Like, Moses, this is messed up. Like, where's the blessing part in this? Well, this was, in a way, looking forward to what was actually going to happen to Israel. Uh, they all deserved to be cursed, and they were going to be cursed by God. And you have this tension in there that the reason that that is is they don't have the heart that's needed. And the individuals within that nation had contaminated everybody else, which this sort of concept is one of the reasons why we care about other people's sanctification, not just our own. So when uh, somebody else in, in God's corporate body, you know, in our case, we're the church rather than Israel. We care about other people's growth in Christ because we know when uh, one person's infected with something, it contaminates other people. The curse section back in chapter 28, as we saw last week, was that the nation's punishment was that all of them would go into exile, even people that hadn't been born yet. This was something that was going to be out in the future. But it wasn't because of things that they had, this later generation had done individually. It was because of other individuals that they were going into exile. But they weren't going in as innocent people either. Uh, they were going in with their own guilt into that punishment, which was all part of God's plan, by the way. Exile wasn't God giving up. Uh, exile was God doing exactly what he said he was going to do with them. It was everything on God's timeline. Now this horizontal to horizontal element here. We have this tension that God has made promises to the nation of Israel. You know, one that they would be a, a great nation, not a teeny tiny one. But they would also be a, the, the hub that would dispense God's blessing to all the other nations. But there's a tension when it's, you know, they keep getting judged and there's all these mass grave sites and they're not really blessing anybody. <laughs> uh, they're a detriment to themselves and everybody else around them. So it's like, well, how is God going to resolve this? Because God promised that they would be a great nation and that they would be a blessing to all the nations. So everyone, and God's sovereignty, how does that get resolved? Which, what I'm referring back to is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, when you can see that's like the, the preface to the Abrahamic covenant. And it's some of those essential Bible verses. Like, if you don't get those verses, you're just, you're going to be confused for the rest of your Bible about all sorts of things. Within this tension, you have, you know, Israel as individuals who are unfaithful, and that affects the ministry that they're supposed to have to the other nations. 
but God has made a corporate promise to all of them that they would be his servant nation that would dispense this blessing to the other nations. And so you can imagine this within Israel. You have one guy that's thinking, that guy's not going to keep that law. He's going to ruin it for all of us. But then the other guy's thinking back about that guy. He's like, well, that guy's going to break this other law, and he's going to ruin it for all of us. And they were both right. <laughs> the nation, God's servant nation, what they're supposed to, to do is reverse the curse for the whole world. You think going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16, Israel was to judge righteously. And the nations, when they would see Israel judging righteously in chapter 4, verse 6, they would respond by saying, surely this great nation is wise, is a wise and understanding nation. That's what God wanted to do with them. He wanted to display his wisdom through them and for other nations to look at uh, Israel as his witness and to then give praise to the wise God whom they served. And the nation, that's Israel, is supposed to impact the nations positively, ultimately with gospel truth, which is what, how their whole worship was set up. We talked about this in the main service last week, the whole tabernacle worship being like a gospel tract. They're teaching to all the nations in a way that they would understand that th this God that Israel serves is holy. He's holy. He, he will not tolerate sin. And man is sinful, which is why they have to live outside of the camp. But their, their God is different than ours because with our gods, we're doing stuff to get to, to our gods somehow. This God is going after his people, and he's coming after us. So we got to stop them to stop him. <laughs> That's how they thought about it. But what's really needed in this case is a, a God-man mediator. Who's somebody who can be the, the go-between and reconcile holy God and sinful man? So I hope you're, you're grasping the tensions here. How can Israel bless the nations if they're cursed? How can they fulfill their mission of being a, a blessing when they are a curse rather than a blessing? And now for a side note on this horizontal to horizontal tensions and understanding the big picture of the Bible. Uh, the covenants, as I've mentioned it many times, what, what covenants do is they, they frame and forward redemptive history. And I've talked about it like a, a puzzle. When you're going to build a puzzle and you're a sane person and you do it right, you build the borders out first. And that, that's what... The, the covenants do. They build out the border for redemptive history, but everything has to fill out within those borders. And there's a particular goal in mind within the big picture, but there's a lot of elements to it with the Noahic covenant. God's goal is ultimately rest for all of his creation, which the idea of rest doesn't mean just like laying around. But it's the idea of enjoying who God is, enjoying the world that he has made. And the Abrahamic covenant, now this is one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that you, you could think of it as a promised covenant. God is explaining how, how that rest is going to work out and it relates to the, the land, the seed, which is God's particular family, and then his blessing 
And says, well, that's the elements of it. So if you think about it in my uh, train analogy, I'd say the Noahic covenant's like the train tracks. Like er everything has to go down those tracks into God's rest. Now the, you know, the little freight train carts, whatever you call those, they're, they're, they're land, seed, and blessing. But the problem is Israel can't move those train carts down the track. And God said, push them. Go out there and push them. Like, we're trying. It's not going anywhere. He's trying to make a point by doing that to them. So the Abrahamic covenant is saying, this is what God is going to do. He's going to bless all of the nations through you. That is what God is going to do. Now, the Mosaic covenant explains how God will do it. And you could say it mediates a connection to the Abrahamic promises or it's, you know, the, the vehicle that drives you to those blessings. But it's an initial temporary step. It's kind of like a, a loaner car that you get that is going to fall apart at some point, but it's preparing you for getting a car that won't fall apart like that car. Or... It's kind of like a VBS when we set up, you know, the, a, a model, a skit set to teach people about a permanent eternal home that they're to move in, which is Christ himself. So the Mosaic Covenant is a, a temporary model that, that's meant to teach you about certain things, but to not just stick with the model and just play with the model set. You got to, when a, when a boy becomes a man... He's got to get rid of his action figures and his video games. And this, is, this is a bad illustration. <laughs> the, the point I just want to make is he, he matures and moves on, and that happens in history. Things mature, develop, and to move on. You're to move out of Moses' house and into Christ as your eternal home. And you might think about how Moses was in te he, he taught the fathers to teach their sons how to explain what the law means because he anticipated that you know the kids would see all of you know the whole VBS skit going on and go dad what does this mean and fathers weren't to tell their sons well son this is just a bunch of do's and don'ts that's all that it is it's just a bunch of rules well it, instead it's a it's a gospel story he says, they explain to their sons, well, we, we were slaves in Egypt, but God redeemed us, which those aren't do's and don'ts. That's just a testimony of God's grace. Fathers were to teach their sons about God's grace. Now, in that, this is Deuteronomy 6.25, they were to say, and it will be righteousness for us if we were careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God, just as he commanded us. Now, what's important to understand here is this, this word righteousness is being used in the context of the Mosaic Covenant and not to Abrahamic promises at this point. So righteousness here isn't Abrahamic Covenant righteousness. This is Mosaic Covenant righteousness. And this is going to tie into this vertical, horizontal, horizontal, horizontal sort of thing. So you have to read this word righteousness within the Mosaic Covenant. Well, what is this righteousness for within the Mosaic Covenant? Well, it's for them to be a witness to the other nations. But it does connect back 
to the Abrahamic promises. Now, how does it do that? Well, if you keep the law, what does it show? Well, it shows God's blessing at a horizontal level. And, you know, the example that we keep coming back to is, well, if they obey it, they'll have the blessing of rain and crops, and if they don't, then there will be famine. Well, that's just horizontal. It doesn't uh, place them in or out of a right relationship of God. It's just merely horizontal uh, righteousness. But it also shows God's blessing at a horizontal level, like having rain and crops, but it also shows that God will judge in righteousness because when Israel failed, they actually ended up fulfilling their testimony and being a light to what God was like and showing that he's a holy God and he will judge unrighteousness even if it's his own chosen people. But what it shows is, the it, the it being the Mosaic Covenant, it, it shows that you can't be righteous enough to earn vertical blessings with God. It's pointing out that sort of tension. So then the question is, well, how, how can you get that Abrahamic kind of righteousness if it's not by our works? Because that's the thing, the misunderstanding that the Hebrews had about the Mosaic Covenant. But you might remember this Abrahamic Covenant kind of righteousness is, is by promise and not by performance. It's not something that you earn to, to get something. And even if you live in it, uh, difficult things can still happen. You can still be persecuted. Uh, you can still uh, have, have famine, but have this Abrahamic kind of righteousness. And so the Mosaic Covenant has shown that you need a salvation that isn't based on something that you do, but on something that God has done. You think back to Genesis 15, 6. This is referring to, to Abraham in this Abrahamic kind of righteousness. It says, then he believed in Yahweh. This is Abraham. He believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, that's different. Counted righteousness is different than uh, earned righteousness, and it's seeing it some Abraham didn't have it, but God counted it to him. He put it on his account, but it was by believing in Yahweh or having faith in God that that righteousness was credited to his account. It wasn't because Abraham had been so willing to go through the whole almost sacrifice of Isaac and to be circumcised. This statement was made before Abraham was ever circumcised or ever offered up. Uh, his son as a sacrifice, which is making the point that righteousness isn't by human obedience. Uh, the one who makes the, the vertical relationship right with God is God and God alone. So it's not, you know, the, this vertical relationship with God isn't earned by righteousness inside of us, but counted righteousness that's it's outside of us. It's in God, but he credits it to us by faith in the God who promises to give a new heart, which is going to be the resolution to all of this stuff. But I'm trying to keep you in the tension and not tell you that till next week. So the Mosaic Covenant was designed to instruct. It wasn't designed to be the end goal. It wasn't just, this is to, to teach you that, you that God is like this and you need something from him. But it, it wasn't saying, well, this is the goal. If you, if you guys can just 
you know, like all these laws are soccer balls and you kick every single one into the goal, then we will have made it and you will win the game. But the problem is you have no legs. You cannot even kick a ball. And you're being told to kick them. <laughs> so right standing in the Mosaic Covenant, as we talked about, it gets the horizontal blessing of rain instead of the curse of famine, but it doesn't achieve the vertical blessing of right standing with God. I think we see that even in you know, our own parenting. You know, ki- kids, our kids can obey us, and they can earn a treat or some sort of privilege, something like this, but it, it doesn't make them saved. It doesn't put them in a right standing with God just because they did that and they got a treat. You know, I'm comparing this to Israel getting rain and, and crops and stuff. So, you know, when we think about this, you know, how, how do we use this in, in parenting to connect back to God? And you remember that horizontal commandment, the fifth one of children uh, obeying their parents is connected to this vertical command of honoring God and having no idols. So what do you do? Well, you, you teach them what is right, which is, you know, Ephesians Six, you know, you know, children obey your parents for this is right. You know, the most basic thing that we ever do in parenting, we just teach them what is right. We teach them what is right. And we teach them to, to honor us as parents, to teach them about honoring God. He said, I'm doing hand motions here. This is horizontal hand motion. This is vertical hand motion. So, you know, they're teaching them to, to honor us so that they can learn about honoring God. And we're teaching them that, that God is holy, that he's right in everything that he does, and accountability has consequences. So that works out in that there's a, a horizontal discipline that we administer to our kids, but it should also come with a vertical discipleship that's shown them, you know, th- this is to alert you to the fact that sin brings pain and death into your life, and that you need to have this right relationship with God, but he's the only one who can make, make this right. So you teach them that they're sinners, not only against other people, but they're primarily sinners against God. And you teach them that the problem of sin isn't, well, so-and-so did this to you. Uh, it, it's the parents that God gave me. It's the siblings that God gave me. It's this tough situation that, that God put me in. Well, the reason that you, that you sinned, this is the, the human responsibility uh, element here, is because, well, you, you sinned. You're responsible for what you did, and you bear the accountability. So the problem's not outside of you, it's inside of you. Uh, sin didn't come from these other people who just planted it inside of you and made you do it. Uh, it's something that you decided to do as an individual. But you also teach them that they need to go to Jesus. They need to go beyond you know, the horizontal relationship to, to you as parents, you know, vertically to Jesus. He's the only solution to the sin problem that's inside of their heart. And that's my introduction. (laughs) So this, we're going to look a little more in depth at this first tension, sovereignty and responsibility, verses 2 to 9 in chapter 29. And these first Four verses is where you see sovereignty, and I think it's five through nine where you see responsibility. So then just consider that while I read through these verses. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt 
to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And I have led you 40 years in this wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am Yahweh your God. Then you came to this place, and Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle. But we struck them down, and we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Massonites. So you shall keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So you, you hear the tension there. God in His sovereignty says, I have not given you a heart to know eyes to see or ears to hear. But then the tension, he says, but you're responsible to keep all the words of this covenant to do them. So you hear that, you just think, you, uh, you should think there's something wrong here. <laughs> this is a lose-lose situation. Uh, there needs to be a resolution for this, and the resolution uh, is not going to be obedience, obviously, uh, because they can't do it. God's saying, you have to obey, but I haven't given you a heart, a heart to obey. Uh, what kind of sermon is this? <laughs> well, what they had seen is they'd seen the great trials, the power of God's judgment. They'd seen great signs that point to the need to, to go somewhere, <laughs> to, to go to the, the resolution of this tension where God hasn't given them a, a heart to know, but that doesn't mean that they uh, escape accountability to them. Now, some might object and say, well, how, how can it be fair for God to require them to do something which he hasn't given them the ability to do? That comes back to our word sovereignty, which it's just, it's a, it's a synonym for right. It's not the word for power. That's usually how we use it, which we have another word for that, which is power. But sovereignty, what we're talking about is not that God has the power to do things, but he, ha he has the right to do what he wants with what is his. And that's how it's interpreted in Romans chapter 9. So, you know, can, can the, the, the clay, you know, come back to the potter and say, you know, why have you made me this way? Is it, you know, has, does God not have a right? Does God not have sovereignty to do what he wants with what is his. So God has an unquestionable right to do what he wants with what is his, and man is in no place to question him and is responsible. But, you know, when we think about this idea of unfairness, you know, you, you, we probably think of it more on our end, like that's unfair for us or this is unfair for Israel, but what's unfair is how faithful Yahweh was to them and how unfaithful they were to him. So if you want to say, well, this is unfair, yes, it is, but the problem's with you guys, not with God. You think about this, God, when he led them, what happened with their clothes and sandals? Yeah, they, I, they, they didn't wear out, which I don't know how that works. Like, you know, did they get a onesie when they were born and it just kept getting bigger and bigger? 
with them? And, or did they get, you know, like extra bigger size clothes and none of their, it's like, man, I still got this onesie from when I was a kid and it hasn't even worn out. Like I've used it on my past six children and it's still like brand new. Well, I got to wondering about that as I read that passage. But <laughs> well, and, and why, did, why did God do this? Why was he so gracious to them? And why, why, why did he demonstrate such faithfulness to such an unfaithful people? He says, that you might know that I am Yahweh your God. That's why he did it. Uh, has God ever dropped the ball on the covenant? on the Mosaic Covenant. He doesn't drop the ball on any of them. But you see, on, on his end of the deal, uh, he, he kept it even when it wasn't fair. When he, he should have just totally squashed everybody, but he didn't. But why is it that they were successful? I mean, why, why were they able to, to go to war and have success in battle? Well, this wasn't because of their ability. It was because of God's faithfulness to keep his end of the covenant. He says, because I've been, I've been faithful to keep my end, you shall keep the words of this covenant and do them. You need to return the same kind of faithfulness to me. You owe it to me. Well, as I mentioned, this, this is unfair in the sense that God keeps his end, but Israel doesn't. But, you know, some, sometimes we hear this from our kids and even our friends, if we're honest, where they say, this isn't fair. And you have to explain, life isn't fair. Uh, but when I explain this to my kids sometimes, I say, you're right, what, what I'm doing isn't fair, but it's just. It's right, what I'm doing is right. I say, God isn't fair, but everything that he does is right. And you look at this, God, God is unfair in how faithful he is to Israel, but what he's doing is right, and it's uh, an expression of his grace all throughout. And God is always just. He can't be anything but that. And he has a right to do whatever he wants with what is his. And what is his? Is his. <laughs> Everything. You know, from the land to, to you. And the people are accountable to, to keep the words, to keep all of the words of this covenant. But they can't and they won't. Yeah, that's the tension. This is the lose-lose sort of situation. You have the same sort of logic in James 2.10. You know, for, forever keeps the whole law, but stumbles in one point. He's become guilty of all. Sinful man, as you know, uh, wants to live in a world of non-responsibility. You know, they want to blame it on its society. That's the reason I'm, I'm like this. Or it's my environment. Or it's because, you know, I, I didn't get the leg up that that other guy had, or uh, it's my family situation, it's uh, my economic situation, but it, it's not me. I, I can't be responsible for anything, but that's not the world that we live in. We live in God's world, and we are responsible for the things that we do, which brings us to the, the second tension here of, you know, the individual, the things we do, and how it relates to this corporate concept. As we talked about within Israel, there would be an individual who was guilty of something, but there would then be corporate punishment because they were to all obey God perfectly together. And verse 10, it says, you stand today, all of you. 
before Yahweh your God, your heads, your tribes, your elders, your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. God's saying, this includes everybody without partiality. It doesn't matter what tribe you're in. It doesn't matter if you're an elder or, or not. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're a child, a parent. It doesn't matter if you're a sojourner. God shows no partiality. And everybody is brought into the accountability of this covenant, whether they want it or not. But also you think of it in terms of, well, who, who receives the, the blessings also. And pick up in verse 13. It says, He did this in order that He might establish you today as His people and that He may be your God just as He spoke to you and as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So this is kind of bringing up this tension you know, in the future. Like why, why have they been blessed and why are they going to be blessed in the future? Is it because of the Mosaic Covenant and their obedience to it? It's like, No. He said, you, you guys are cursed, cursed, cursed. The only thing that you deserve is the curse. But why are you going to be blessed? He says, because I, I made a promise to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to keep them. I'm going to keep them d- despite you. So with these present people, he's, Moses is helping them to consider things in, in light of the past because it's like, well, why, why are we why are we blessed at times when we deserve to be cursed? Is it because we're just so spanky at times and just so lovable and obedient, which is just not something they're you know, really known for? Is it, no, it's because God made a promise to Abraham and because salvation is by grace. But it's also connected to their future, and it's like, well, why are you going to go into exile? And you are. It's inevitable. Like, you will be cursed, you will go into exile, but there is going to be one who's going to come into the exile to break the exile. So there's a corporate connection with the nation to their past, their present, their future. They, they live together, they die together. They'll be cursed together, but they'll also be blessed together. And cursed isn't the last word, by the way. The last word is going to be restoration for these people. That the twist here, as we've seen, is this focus on the individual. And this is 29.18. talks about being aware lest there be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from Yahweh our God to go to serve the gods of those nations, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. So you see that connection. It's like, you know, any of you, the individual, but you could be a poisonous root that then affects everybody else. It's going to infect the entire corporate entity. It says, be aware of anyone, any one individual's heart who turns away from God. Because the only way they can survive is if every single individual, every family, and every tribe has a heart that doesn't turn away from God. But if one heart turns away from God, everybody's infected by it. 
by being a root-bearing poisonous fruit. It's like, you know, gangrene. You know, it doesn't just stay on one part of the body. It, it affects the, the whole body. Similarly, the individual affects, affects the whole corporate entity. If one fails, all fail. And the poison spreads to all, and all will die. You think of it like this. Sickness is contagious, but health isn't. You, don't, you can't go into a hospital while you're well, hoping that people will catch your health. It's, it's similar with these ideas of clean and unclean. You know, a person who's unclean can't contract somebody else's cleanness. They're like, oh, I'll just go around some clean people and that'll make me clean. Well, no, what, what happens instead is they become unclean. The only exception to this is Jesus. When he shows up in his ministry, when he touches the unclean, he's not defiled by it, but he makes clean. Which you know, as a demonstration that, you know, uh, only Christ can break the curse and bring the blessing. He, he's the resolution to all of these things, ultimately. Now, this text about the root-bearing poisonous fruit, it gets quoted out in Hebrews 12, but it's translated there as root of bitterness, which we tend to focus on that word bitterness and think about having like a root of bitterness and being bitter towards somebody in our heart, but it's, it's a different sort of idea. It's not just about this one particular sin, bitterness, but any sort of sin can be a bitter root for everybody. And I think you hear that in Hebrews 12 and this concern for everybody's sanctification. And it says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. We talked about this in an earlier lesson, but this idea, when we think about sanctification, we think about my Bible reading, my praying, things that I do. The Bible never talks about sanctification in, in just singular individual terms. It always talks about sanctification in relation to a corporate body and everybody else. It is, it, it, the, the Bible doesn't say, you know, you, you and you alone are the body of Christ, but it says, y'all are the body of Christ. And you hear that in this text, you're, you're pursuing peace with all men. It's sanctification for everybody. See, to that nobody falls short. You know, you're not just seeing to yourself, but to everybody you don't want to, there to be a, a, a one bitter root among the, the whole bunch because what will happen is that many, many will be defiled by it. Yeah. Yeah, so another biblical analogy that's brought up there is how you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, it's that same sort of concept. You, know, you put a little poison in a root, it's going to affect you know, the, the fruit in, in other aspects. It, it won't just, it won't be isolated. Every individual in Israel gets cursed with a corporate curse. And it's important to remember, this is, this is, a, this is a book 
in a series of books, and it's also a sermon within a series of sermons for Moses that's, you know, moving towards something, which is the resolution of all of these sort of tensions. And, you know, I think a, a lot of misunderstandings about this section of Scripture comes from not just letting the tensions be there and, and not, you know, you try to resolve them too early, and, you, and you'll resolve them wrong every time. Uh, they're, they're meant to keep pushing you forward to somewhere else and to tell you what that particular resolution is. But you know while you're reading this, it can't, it can't end like this. It, it can't end with every individual curse before God and that curse of infecting ev- everybody in the corporate body and then needing them to do something for their heart which they can't do and they won't do. We're going to see if we can try to wrap this whole thing up today as much as I'd like to nerd out about all sorts of cool Hebrew stuff in this text. But, uh, third tension. Let's talk about the, the third tension here. This is kind of like a fast forward to the future and the nation's relationship to the nations. And you remember the tension is that there's been promises made to the nation of, of Israel, namely through the Abrahamic covenant, that they would be a blessing to others, but that they they have to obey in order to be a blessing to the nations. That has to happen. But the problem is, God hasn't given them a heart to do that, and he said that they're not going to do that. (laughs) You know, what kind of book am I reading here? (laughs) It's like, somebody's got to fix this. Which, you know, I mean, if you only had up to Deuteronomy, you might despair a little bit, but we know there's like, there's this much more to read. (laughs) So it talks about, here, verse 23, well, 22, it says, in, in the generation to come, you think about that, that this is a singular word, and then your sons, that's plural, it says, the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land shall see the plagues of the land and the diseases which Yahweh has af- afflicted it, and they will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste unsown and nothing sprouting and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which Yahweh overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Same thing. You see what happens with the nation and then the nations. You know, they're not coming and saying, oh, what a wise and understanding people these are. They're saying, why would you ever build a house here? <laughs> like you, don't, you don't build a house on brimstone and salt. And, and, and why did their God do this to them? Which is, you know, part of the irony here is this is exactly the testimony that God wanted to give to the other nations. And by not fulfilling their purpose, they're fulfilling their purpose in demonstrating God's holiness. But it's by His holy wrath coming upon them and all of the nations seeing it. And you see these tensions of sovereignty and responsibility you have the plagues of the land, the diseases which Yahweh is afflicted, but it, and it's his anger and his wrath, you know, God's sovereignly doing this, but it's because of their failure and their responsibility to be a blessing to the other nations, in which God still blesses the other nations anyways with teaching them to fear him through the judgment of his servant nation. So, 
the nations, you know, they come and we read this question. They say, you know, why has Yahweh done thus to Israel? Why this great burning anger? Well, what is the reason for why these things have happened to Israel? Why, why has God had such great wrath against them? Uh, why are they being treated like the worst of the worst? Why are they being treated like Sodom and Gomorrah? Why has this happened to the nation that we know that God made a, a promise to Abraham that they would be a great nation and be a, a blessing to, to everybody else? Uh, they even knew things like this through uh, their famous prophet, Balaam. You know, he was a popular, famous prophet, and he taught about the Abrahamic promises to him. It, people weren't ignorant about these things. Future prophets, as you know, they, they pick up on this comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah and often uh, compare Israel to Egypt, Israel to the Canaanites, Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, God communicates to them, you know, you are those people. You're just like them, and that's why I'm treating you like them. And why is he doing this? In verse 25, it says, because they forsook the covenant of Yahweh. Well, how, how did they forsake it? Well, verse 26 says, they went and they served other gods and worshipped them. And the consequence was Yahweh's anger upon them. It was curse. It was you know, uprooting, you know, the, the vineyard that he compares them to being and casting them into exile. But even exile will be a testimony to, to the world that Yahweh has done this. You see it when they come, they, they don't say, you know, why has this just happened by chance to these people? They know Yahweh has done this. There's a, a, a particular, there's one God who has done this to these people. And they're recognizing the sovereignty of Yahweh in that. Even when it looks like loss, God is still communicating his plan and his supremacy through his judgment and his wrath. Even when you know, the nation falls, they still serve their purpose of making Yahweh known to the nations. Even from their failure to forward God's plan, it still forwards God's plan. So even when they lose, God still wins and does exactly what he's purposed to do through them. So this section ends with not only Israel's failure, but that they're going to continue to fail, and their inability. They're, they're not able to do anything different than this. So how does the Abrahamic covenant fit into this? How do things work with God sovereignly not giving them the heart that they need, but also holding them responsible for something that they, they can't do? But yet, God has promised that these blessings are going to come to them and through them. How do all of these tensions get resolved? Which brings us to Deuteronomy 29.29 in its context. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God. Which the secret things is, well, how do these tensions get resolved? Which you see here, this isn't, you know, some catch-all category like, I can't understand this Bible verse, so that means nobody can understand this Bible verse, so I'll quote Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, this isn't, you know, a verse that we go back to to just say, eh, I don't need to continue in any sort of study of Scripture or theological issue or to try to understand God's divine activity. You just can't know it. 
And I could justify myself by saying this Bible verse. But the, the secret things that belong to Yahweh, are it, it's the resolution to all of these sort of things. So the things that would fit in this sort of category uh, would be like the new covenant, you know, which is something that we know about. It's not a, a secret thing anymore. It's just something that hadn't been revealed yet, which we're going to see at the, the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going to have... You know, the, you could see it as like the very first verses on the new covenant or at least some sort of like predecessor or preface to getting the rest of it later in like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I'll show you that another week. Uh, he says, but the revealed things belong to us and to our sons forever that we may do all the words of this law. So he says, instead of you know, trying to figure out what the secret things are, you need to focus on what has God revealed to you. You need to be doing these things, not speculating about the future and making up things or coming up with your own resolutions for the tensions. You just have to live in the tension and do the things that I have revealed to you at this point in history. So they have a responsibility to live by the revealed things and not to speculate about the secret things that'll happen in the future. I'm sure you know there's a, a temptation to get distracted with figuring things out. You know, some people call it that thing COVID. I like the Great Reset better because I don't think of COVID as like some sort of deity that can perform and act upon people in the world. But we have to refer to that event somehow. So call it what you will. We report, you decide. But you think about, you, you wanted to know, is the rapture about to happen? Like, Mm, let's see, you know, it's 2020, I think Passover's in, in April, and that kind of fits with some, like, theology, but, you know, maybe I'm going to be raptured in April, and I'll have to keep putting up with this stuff. All right, you want to know, well, you know, what's going on with this guy and this governing entity and these nations and stuff? Well, those are things that God hasn't told you, but what he, what he has told you, you, you can know those things, and you can actually probably know way more than... Uh, you realize there's a lot more revealed in, in Scripture than most people know. So don't pull the Deuteronomy 29, 29 thing on somebody. Uh, you might actually have some things to learn. <laughs> it is. It is. You're going to have to try really hard not to laugh at somebody when they pull that on you next time. And you say, let's read this chapter in context and see what it's really about. But, you know, there's, there's a temptation to get distracted and try to figure out things. It's like, oh, maybe this, maybe this guy's the, the, the antichrist. Or maybe that the reason that this is happening to me is because of this other thing that I did like 13 years ago. And it's just like coming back to haunt me or something like that. Well, we're not to be given to, to superstition and speculation. But there is an element in which I think this verse helps us to, to understand how to deal faithfully with painful and perplexing situations still. I thought of this, I was, I was reading this book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and this is, this is a quote from him. He says, God may not tell us everything we want to know about the painful events of life, but he has told us all we need to know, end quote. It's like that, you know, he, he's commenting on Deuteronomy 29, 29, by the way, there's things that you might want to know, but God has not chosen to make them known to you at this time. But there is some things that he has revealed to you to know, and that's all that you need to know. 
And you can live by those things. You can live by knowing that God is sovereign. God is, God is good. God is wise, and he's doing something good to me and through me in these circumstances. I know that he's trustworthy. I know that he's wise. I know that he can never do anything that's unholy or, or unwise. Uh, he's doing this to, to teach me something, which ties back into when we had talked about learning contentment. You know, where do you learn contentment? Well, you, you don't learn contentment when you just have all of the stuff that you want. You learn contentment when God takes away those things. And, and then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I, my contentment was in those things instead of God. Uh, I was actually practicing coveting and idolatry. And God has graciously been pointing that out to me by taking away things so that I could learn contentment. Well, Israel, as it, as it goes on, they, they're not going to do all the words of this Torah. They're going to get kicked out. They're going to go into to exile. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts you right in the middle of all of these tensions, but it doesn't resolve them. But it, it, you, you're wanting Moses to, to give you a, a conclusion to his sermon that you know, resolves these things because it's like, you know, we can't stand up and like sing a praise song after this, Moses, which is what they're going to do. But at this point, they couldn't. This is, there's these tensions of, you know, God's sovereignty, our responsibility, an individual's guilt and how it relates to, to corporate punishment. But the good news with the Mosaic Covenant is a little something called planned obsolescence which is something you get real frustrated with when in you know, the business world where you purchase products that have planned obsolescence. This is a quote from the internet to tell you what planned obsolescence is. It's a business strategy where manufacturers deliberately design products to fail prematurely and become out of date, often to sell another product or upgrade, which is why you know, American and German cars break down, but Japanese ones don't. You know, the Japanese haven't figured out how to work planned obsolescence into their cars. <laughs> Thankful for that. This is why you have certain, you know, devices that they become obsolete you know, after a newer version comes out. It's like, well, how did that happen? They planned for it. Or why you, like, you have these system updates that all of a sudden it's just denied. Your, your stuff, it, it doesn't work anymore, but they planned for it and they, they have a resolution for only $99.99. The Mosaic Covenant is like that. There's a, a, a planned obsolescence in it. You know, you read that explicitly in uh, the book of Hebrews. You know, it, it has become obsolete. It was meant to pass away and fade away. You know, there, there was meant to be a maturity and redemptive history of moving to this thing that was not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles as one new man and a thing called the church. Some people misunderstand this and think, well, God just got rid of Israel because of their failure. But the problem with that is that God ordained their failure. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to discard you if you fail. But he says, I'm, I'm never going to discard you, but you are going to fail. And then I'm going, I'm going to save you by grace and redeem you and still do exactly what I said that I was going to do. So it's all part of his, his plan. So he's not getting rid of them, but instead what he's doing is accomplishing his purposes through them throughout history. 
The point isn't that Israel couldn't earn it with God as if salvation actually worked that way. That's the assumption behind that sort of thinking. The point isn't that Israel could earn it with God, so God just said, hey, I'll just go find somebody else that can pull it off. I'll go find better people. Well, this is the, you know, the boastful Gentile hermeneutic we talk about in Romans 11 where they say, well, we got the promises because we're not like you guys. That's called self-righteousness. Paul says, don't think about the Bible like that or Jewish people. He actually says, you're just like them, but I've been gracious to you and I'm still being gracious to them and I haven't revoked any of my promises to them, by the way. I'm going to keep all of them. So rather what we see in Scripture is their failure is part of the plan and it moves things forward and it promotes and it pushes forward to the need of a new covenant where all of these tensions can be resolved. So I'll leave you there. I'll pray for us. You can ponder these things among yourselves. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this text in which you teach us things about your character, your plan throughout history. pray that you would help us to have a, an accurate understanding of them, but also a, a great thankfulness that uh, we don't live in some of these tensions. We've had the resolution of the Messiah coming and giving us new hearts, uh, giving us the salvation that we could never accomplish ourselves, but to give it to us by his accomplishment to bring us not into a religion of do, but a religion of done. We pray that these things would increase our devotion to you, increase our faithfulness and understanding your word, thinking about it correctly and understanding history, where it's come from and where it's going, even from this point today. And primarily that we just consider your faithfulness, that nobody ever thwarts your will or your plan, that you will execute everything according to the counsel of your will, and nobody will ever hinder you or stop you, not even our own sin. You're able to overcome that and that forever, and you will, and you'll bring everything into your rest, your whole creation, and we wait for and long for that day when all tension is resolved and sin is no more and Christ is on this earth judging righteously. Amen.